I don't remember having friends in elementary school except for Rusty in first grade. I did not have friends until I was in middle school. So seventh grade, everything for me changed in seventh grade. All of a sudden, I got invited in to a circle. There were four girls and three boys. So Nancy, Cammy, Shelly, and uh, Amy, and then Kevin, Kevin, and Dave. And they were in band. I know, two Kevins. And uh, Kevin Prime and Kevin Tertiary or Secondary. I don't know how that works. But the, the, seven, the seven of them hung out everywhere. They would eat together in the cafeteria. They would hang out at each other's homes after school. And one magical day in middle school at the table, Nancy says to me, hey, Mark, come sit down. And there was an open chair, and they invited me in. These seven people became my utter best friends by the time I graduated high school. Um, in fact, Kevin, Kevin, and Dave made a video that parodied high school life, and they managed to get very uptight Mark Vanderpool to do a version of Risky Business in my, <laughs> in my boxer shorts. Yeah, I know. Crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. When I went off to college, though, they all had somebody in that friend circle that was going to the college that they were going to, not me. Not a single person from my high school was going to Wheaton College off in the frozen tundra of Chicago. I was all by myself, so I had to start over. And sure enough, I got invited in. My freshman year, there was a group of guys on my floor that decided Sunday church just wasn't enough. So we would all go to church Sunday morning, and then around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they would gather in the dorm lounge and pray and worship and pray some more for two or three hours straight on a Sunday afternoon. And they invited me in. Hey, Max, come on in. There's room. And then uh, on Thursday nights, uh, Kitty Mazingo invited me. She was an oboe player in band. She invited me to come to these vineyard uh, student gatherings. There was a vineyard church that had just started in Wheaton, Illinois. Way back in the 80s, that was just strange stuff. Like nobody had heard of that before. And so I, uh, she would invite me into this room. And I remember the door opening and all these people are laying on the floor. They had been slain in the spirit. And I, as a Baptist, I had no experience with that. And I was like, Kitty, are they sleeping? Is it, you know, do we need to call an ambulance? Like, what's going on? And no, 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 no. So I, I got the whole Monty, right? And she invited me in. Justin Whitmull Early, in his book, Made for People, puts it this way. He says, being made for people means that we do an incredible thing when we open up our lives to others. We mirror the Trinity, and satisfy an innate need that we all have to be invited into the circle. The reason human friendship is possible is because of the generous openness of the Trinity. Justin Early in Made for People. Most of us in this room have had experiences where we've been excluded. And most of us in this room have experiences where we've been included. Um, and... Because we're human, um, we tend to return to where we're wanted and welcomed and invited. Uh, you could almost say that people are acceptance magnets. They'll go wherever there's a strong enough pull of, hey, you're welcome, there's space, come and sit down here. 
Um, God knows this about us, which is why Jesus was constantly inviting people in. So today's big idea is really simple. As followers of Jesus, we build relationships that are strong enough to invite others in. We build relationships that are strong enough to invite others in. And we're actually going to look at three little vignettes from Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5. The calling of the first disciples, a group of friends who lowered their paralyzed friend down from a hole in the roof, and then the calling of Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. So it's in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to just chunk it away vignette by vignette. So Luke chapter five, and I'll read verses one through 11, and we'll talk about it for a little bit. One day, Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down one more time. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in on the other boat and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. But Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is God. So when Jesus says something, God is saying something. When Jesus does something, God is doing something. When Jesus feels something, he's showing us how God feels. And even though Jesus is God, he's born to ordinary parents, Mary and Joseph the carpenter, and Ordinary people, no one famous, no one rich, just an ordinary carpenter and his wife. And Jesus chose the most unlikely people to be his disciples. Now, the way it worked in the first century, as Brian has taught many times in our church family, the way it worked in the first century is you picked your rabbi. As a student, you would look around and you would say, hmm, I like that Derek, but I think I might like Lefty more. So I'll, I'll be a follower of Lefty, right? Sorry, Derek. <laughs> and then some people, some people would be like, oh, that Lefty, he's wrong. I'm going to be a follower of Derek, right? And so the disciples or students would pick their rabbi. Jesus flips the script and Jesus chooses his own disciples, and he picks the most unlikely, ordinary people that you could pick. So much so that Simon says this, Oh Lord, please leave me. <laughs> I can't even be in your presence. I'm an ordinary fisherman. I'm an everyday sinner. Like, this can't work. But I want you to see something in Peter's response. Peter is humble 
and Peter knows exactly what he's bringing to the table. Nothing. (laughs) God can use humble people who know what they're bringing to the table. So all throughout Luke's gospel, we see this pattern of Jesus picking people that you and I normally wouldn't pick. Um, And we see another vignette of that play out in Luke chapter 5, verse uh, 17 and following. Okay, so I'll read this passage, and again, we'll talk about it for a little bit. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowds. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. They lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus then turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. (laughs) Yes, they had. Okay? All throughout Luke's gospel, we see Jesus reaching out to those on the edge of society. And here is someone who has the physical limitation of being paralyzed. Now, you need to understand something about Jews of the first century, not like people today. Jews of the first century, if they came across somebody who was poor, somebody who had six fingers instead of five, somebody who was lame, somebody who was sick, they would say, oh, they they brought that on themselves. They sinned, or someone in their family sinned. God's punishing this person right here because they're sick, they've got six fingers, they're poor, like they've done something to earn this spot in life. And so, As the man is being lowered into the crowd, what's on everybody's mind? What do they know that's true about that man that's coming down? Oh, he he deserves that. He's exactly where God wants him to be because he or someone in his family has done something wrong. And so when the man is lowered, where does Jesus go first? Your sins are forgiven. So which is actually harder for God? It's actually harder for God to forgive sins. It's easier for God to say, you're healed. So Jesus starts with what's harder, even though from our perspective, it seems easier because we can just mouth, you're forgiven. But God, see, it's harder to forgive. It's easier to heal. So Jesus starts with what's harder and then works to what's easier. So in that way, Jesus demonstrates that he's both powerful and merciful. Um, And of course, we end up at the end of the chapter with Matthew, the tax collector. 
Verse 27, later as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything and followed Jesus. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call those not who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. So Jesus spots a tax collector in his booth and decides to issue a call. Come, follow me. Tax collectors were in fact considered scum of the earth in part because they were morally corrupt. Every tax collector for Rome collected the money for Rome, but also collected more in every single town of Judea. The richest person in town was the local tax collector because he had access to the Roman soldiers who would force you to give over everything he asked you to give over. And he would send off to Rome a part and he would keep a part. So tax collectors, of course, were hated. And the other reason that they were hated and despised is because uh, it meant that they were working with an occupying army. Judea was an occupied land. Romans were everywhere. Romans were calling the shots. Romans were the boss. And the Jews didn't take light. They didn't take that very well. Okay. And so it meant a tax collector was morally corrupt and a collaborator with an occupying army. I don't know who that would be today. I don't know who in your circles among categories of people are most despised, but you could probably think of some groups of people that when the, that profession comes up or that name comes up, there's like a distaste that comes out. And Jesus says, you, you tax collector, follow me. Me? Yeah, yeah, you. Okay, which leads me to a very important observation. Anybody who responds to the call of Jesus can receive a blessing. Anybody who responds to the call of Jesus can receive a blessing. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's in your past. I don't care where you are today. Respond to Jesus, receive a blessing. It's that simple. But Levi wants his friends and fellow tax collectors to see what's happened to him. So he throws a party a dinner party, and invites them all. And the religious leaders complained. Why? In the ancient world, table fellowship conveyed acceptance. Now, I, don't, I know that we Christians and religious people don't worry about that today, but 2,000 years ago, there was a concern that people might mistakenly think that you're accepting and condoning everything that a person does because you're hanging out with them, and they're at your table. And Jesus, of course, gets accused of this. And he's like, you know, the, the, the religious leaders and the God squad are like, why are you eating with such scum? And that's when Jesus lets us in on his thinking. And that's the next two verses. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor, when I go to the ER, when I go to urgent care, 
I know I need help. Because I don't like to go to the doctor at all. I don't like to go to the ER. I don't want to sit in the ER for five hours. I'm there because I know I have something going on and I need medical care and attention. You got something that I don't. So I'll be here and I'll wait <laughs> and I'll endure all this stuff. I know that I can't help myself. I need those stitches. I need that Z-pack. <laughs> I need what doctors can go. Jesus is saying something significant here. And he's saying, look, there are people in life who are closed, closed to God, closed off to the things of God. And there are things who are open, people who are open. They know they don't have what it takes. They know they need help. Sometimes you can call them seekers. Sometimes you can call them other names. Uh, but Jesus, the call of Jesus goes out to those who know they need help, to the humble, to the seekers, to the ones who are searching. And I want to point out something else about Jesus and in interchanging with all of these people. Um, in the Jewish world of the first century, there was a real concern about getting contaminated. Okay? So if someone had leprosy, if someone had a disease, you would avoid them. Okay, uh, if you were a leper, you had to shout or have someone walk ahead of you shout unclean, unclean. So people could not mistakenly bump up against you. That's how, that's how strict they were about these kind of things because they believed that the leper, the unclean person, the diseased person would then contaminate them. But Jesus does something remarkable. He touches, he invites people to have, he sits at dinner tables with them and they don't contaminate him. His goodness and his health actually contaminates them instead. They become healed. They become clean. They become transformed people. So, so this you know, contamination thing actually works in reverse with Jesus. Okay? Um, Jesus' health and goodness contaminates those who are sick and lame, etc., for the better. The lame walk, the blind see, the captives are set free. Jesus liberates, Jesus heals, Jesus saves. There are some people in your life right now who are in a place of humility and who are actually open to the things of God. They are. They know that they're not enough. They know that they need rescued at some level. They know. They're searching. They're wondering. They're hungry. So in light of what we see in Luke's gospel, in light of what we see in our master Jesus, I want to ask a couple of questions. And the first question is simply, who in your, I don't know where the rest of the print on that went, who in your life right now has shown a humility or an interest in Jesus? Who in your life right now has shown a humility like Peter and an interest in Jesus? And then secondly, who in your circles or in your life right now needs Jesus, whether they know it or not? <laughs> um, this is why I travel in some circles uh, in this community. It's why I'm heavily involved in the Chamber of Commerce. It's why I will be a theater dad. I'm not a theater person. That's not my thing. Uh, but I hang out in theater circles because of my daughter. And the same thing is true about a ballet studio. Why? Because it puts me in proximity with people who are lost. And I find that in places and circles like that, I encounter all kinds of people who are open 
and hungry. Um, at the dance studio earlier this year, I had a conversation with one of the moms about some extended family issues in her life where her extended family's just stepping all over her. And I simply posed a question. What if the next time this happens, you simply said, I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. That opened a door for three more conversations. She's now read through the Christian book called Boundaries. She's hungry. She's open. Um, I do this, uh, I serve, it's one of the few places I said yes to, I serve on an arts advisory council for the two theater departments in our community. And I do that because I am a trained Pharisee. I'm a pastor. I studied at the same school that produced Billy Graham. I've interned under Chuck Colson. And so if I sign off on a play, the play's okay. Both theater departments have caught, you wouldn't believe the grief they've caught from some folks in Wilmore um, and from other circles. And it's hard to be a theater kid. And if you know anything about theater kids, theater kids are different. <laughs> theater kids are different. And I find that if I'm there in those spaces, it provides opportunities for questions, opportunities for conversations, okay? So in light of these things, I wanna offer some practical ways to take this home, practical ways that you and I, like Jesus, can invite others in. And the first is real simple. Think open circle. Look around this room right now. Is this room set up for relationship? Is this room set up for relationship? No, you're in rows facing one guy talking at you. Two thumbs down, zero stars out of five in terms of the relationship building capacity of this room. It's not set up for that, okay? Uh, how you arrange chairs and or bodies when people are gathered together matters. Do you ever leave space intentionally? Just one more spot or one more chair. I'll tell you something I've challenged every small group that has started at Generations. Every small group leader, I've had this conversation with them over the years. I don't care how many people eventually come or participate in your small group. If you would do me a favor and please leave just one chair, one empty chair every time you gather. And then you can even talk about it as a group and you can say, who might God want to put in this chair? You're, it's not for Elijah. <laughs> He's already come. His name is John the Baptist, and he was pointing to Jesus. <laughs> okay? But who can you put in that chair? There's, there's always room for more. I love playing this out in elevators. I, so keep in mind, I'm an introvert. I don't like people being in my personal space, but I push the envelope when I'm in an elevator. So if I'm in an elevator and it's full and the door's open and there are people that want to get in, I'm the guy who says, oh, yeah, you'll fit. Come on and I start pushing people back, I'm gonna tell you in that moment, two things have happened. I have now made enemies of everybody in the elevator, and I have now made a new friend of the person who wanted to get in. And that's a palpable way that that plays out. That's a palpable way that plays out, okay? There's always room for one more. The second thing, pay attention when meeting for the first time. Okay, so Josh, if you'll stand up for a moment. Hi, Josh. My name is Max. Hi, Max. I'm Josh. Hey, Josh. It's nice to meet you today. I'm glad that you're here. You. Um, Josh, it was good to meet you today. You too. Okay? So you may sit down. I, how many times did I say his name? Twice. I looked him in the aisle. I even smiled. Hard for me sometimes. 
Okay. <laughs> I find that I, my natural state is like curmudgeon. That's kind of my natural state. So I need lots of coffee and lots of Jesus to be more like Jesus. Okay. So pay attention when meeting somebody for the first time, make eye contact, say their name and say their name a second time. And here's something I want to give permission on our church family. It's okay to ask someone their name again. It's okay to ask someone their name again. Hey, tell me your name again. And let's make a pact that it will be okay for that to be a full baker's dozen. So 13 times, you're going to get 13 times, 13 times of asking somebody their names. Here's why I want you to give each other permission. Americans are on this bend where they expect perfection out of everybody. You do one thing wrong and they're zorching you on Instagram and all the TikToks and all the, I'm old, I don't know what this stuff is. But like, you know, you're getting roasted if you can't live up to you like 100% of the time. Americans are busy, they're distracted, they're overwhelmed, they're overloaded, they have low bandwidth. The name stuff is harder for Americans right now. So give yourself grace. Give yourself grace. A baker's dozen attempts. <laughs> and even then, I would urge. Here's why. 30 years ago, I worked as a janitor in Jesmond County Schools. And there's a lady that was a cafeteria worker, and then she was 62 years old. She's 92 today still living, okay? And she had a hearing problem and couldn't hear Max. All she heard was Mac. So that's what she calls me. To this day, I'm Mac. I've never corrected her. <laughs> it's never bothered me in part because she always gave me a second helping because she felt I was too skinny and Jenny didn't feed me enough. But like, but I just ran into her at Kroger two months ago or however many months ago and she was like, guess how old I am? And, you know, I'm like, how old are you now, Teeny? And she goes, Mac, I am 90, you know. And I was like, are you still mowing that lawn? She has a huge front lawn. She gets on a tractor. Um, so I'm not telling you that you have to let somebody call you a wrong name, okay? You can correct people. No, it's Max. But I'm just saying we could be a lot more gracious about allowing each other the time to learn those things. Uh, third, if you're hosting, make a point to introduce new people. So if you have a dinner party, if you have something going on, make a point. Hey, this is so-and-so and go around the room and have people introduce. Um, one more thing, and that's this, name tags are not a sin, even in a small group setting. Here's why. Even in your small group, if you wore name tags in your small group, the first time that somebody shows up for the first time, guess what? They're glad for those name tags. <laughs> They're glad for those name tags. I see it's Sarah. <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> So they're glad name tags are not a sin, um, nor are name tags in some way cheating, okay? Now, for those of you that want to go to the extra mile, I'll give you one more thing that's not on the list. If you encounter somebody new and you want to go the extra mile and they've met people, follow up with a text or a phone call where you name the people that they just met. Um, so I'll pick on Paul and Janice for a moment. Somebody reaches out to me and they're like, oh, I met Paul and Janet, and I'm like, yes, yes, you did, but it's actually Janice, and Janice is Paul's husband, and I don't know if you know this, his wife, Janice is Paul's wife, thank you, all right, see, I was looking at you, that's why I said that, Janice is Paul's wife, and I don't know if you know this about Janice, she's a great listener, and did you know she used to be a librarian of all things, I mean, holy cow, and I will send along Janice's number, even though I didn't ask your permission. And that helps that person take that next step, right? So that's an extra mile thing that you can do 
for those of you that are truly brave, okay? Here's why this matters. Here's why this matters. I've done this entire series because Americans today are lonely. 60% of Americans today say they face loneliness on a regular basis, even though they're super hyper-connected through social media, okay? Americans are lonely, and the current the current in America is very, very strong, and it's going to pull you and me and everyone else toward isolation and loneliness. This is a riptide current. So Jenny and I uh, do a family vacation every year where we go to the Outer Banks with her side of the family. And every year, especially when the kids were young, there would always be a discussion about, ooh, that's a rip current. That's a rip current right there. Kids can't go into the water right there because, you know, we didn't want them to get pulled out. The thing about a rip current is if you get caught in here, it doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It's pulling you out to sea. And what I want to say to you today is that the currents in American culture right now are pulling Americans away from each other toward isolation and loneliness. It's not good. It's not good for our democracy. It's not good for our communities. It's just not good. Okay, Jesus invites us into the circle. Jesus invites us into the circle. It's what God does. And because Jesus invites, we invite. I sometimes wonder if one of the things that drove Jesus in being so invitational was the experience he had with his own hometown. If you'll remember, Jesus goes to his hometown and they don't want to have anything to do with him. They run him out of town like they... They, the people he grew up with, the people he knew, that knew him the best, so to speak, didn't want to have anything to do with him. Basically, more or less rejected him, right? And this rabbi then spends all of his ministry, oh yeah, inviting, inviting, inviting. And I wonder if that was something that informed his radical way of inviting the rejected, the unwanted, the despised. Jesus just keeps inviting and inviting. Can we agree today that Jesus is better? Jesus is better, isn't he? Jesus is a good friend. Jesus is a true friend. Jesus is a loyal friend. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it.